Welcome to Ice Ice Beta, a podcast about making axes for ice climbing, mixed, and dry tooling. And I'm your host, Aaron Gary. What goes into making an ice axe? Of course, there is technical know-how, design, and testing. But for Marty Terrio, it was more like an act of therapy, and a way to connect with friends. Marty started forecast equipment after he was medically released from the Canadian military for PTSD. He'd been percolating on the idea of a new tool and finally had the time to heal and to create. He wanted a tool that could do it all, and he drew upon decades of familiarity with different axes and uncompromising principles for certain features. Marty says, if you had asked him 10 years ago if he'd be making climbing tools today, the answer would emphatically be, no way. Yet here he is, with Brian and Zach, with a tool helping people achieve everything from alpine FAs to competition podiums to first leads, and all proudly made in Canada. Listen on to hear how Marty went from gear junkie to gear maker in today's episode. Salut Marty, salut mec, comment ça va? Ah, ça va très bien, euh, content d'être ici puis euh, pouvoir avoir une jasette avec toi ce matin. Great, good day for you too. <laughs> I, oh wow, um, my French is très merde. Dude, you're doing better than most, so I'll give you I'll give you nine point five out of ten for the effort. Oh, good. Oh, good. I appreciate it. Uh, along those lines, the reason why I started in uh, uh, French and air quotes is because you're actually based in Quebec, and so just to start by stirring the pot a little bit, who makes the best poutine in the province? All right. The, the, the poutine debate in Quebec, it, it, it's actually huge here. I think every little village thinks they were the first and they have the best poutine. But I'll, I'll sadly stay on the sideline because I am not from Quebec. I am actually from New Brunswick. I'm a proud Acadian. That's the, for people that don't know, that's the little French community in the uh, east coast of Canada. So I'll, I'll leave that poutine debate to all of the villages in Quebec and uh, let them do their own competition. But yeah, poutine is really, really dope in Quebec. <laughs> For people that don't know what it is, it's a uh, it's dirty, dirty meal that you get after a good day of sport or something because calories are through the roof. But it's so good. Um, also works as a hangover cure. Definitely. <laughs> so very diplomatic of you. And with that, we'll jump into the questions. So you're self-described as, and I quote, one of those weirdos who bought crampons and tools before rock shoes and a chalk bag. So what was it about winter climbing that first attracted you? Well, I was your basic like outdoor kid that I got through my parents. Thank you, mom and dad, uh, for introducing me to that outdoor scene of everything. So basically the natural order thing for me was like getting into hiking and then backpacking and then my first nights out with a tent and everything on my own. And then my aspirations were mountaineering. I was seeing those guys doing Everest and all that, all that mountaineering stuff. And it was so cool for me. It was the next level. But being a kid from New Brunswick, Canada, where everything was flat and there's no, basically no mountain, it was kind of hard to get into it. So yeah, I ended up ordering on MEC some crampons, uh, some ice axe, a harness, and a rope, locking beater and an ATC. That was my first order and trying to figure all of this out. So yeah, I had crampons and ice tools before I owned rock shoes and a chalk bag. And uh, yeah, 
always kind of attracted to the harder stuff. So for me, the cold was a good like challenge and yeah, all those winter activities was always for me like a, an attraction, let's say. So yes, I am one of those weirdos who likes to cold. <laughs> Do you mind placing us in time maybe a little bit? Like what was, was it from the news that you were hearing about Everest or were, were there big uh, ascents taking place at that time? Uh, no, there was nothing really that comes to mind, like events. It was just, I guess, my age and when I was starting to get into, you know, getting older and more independent from the parents and stuff. That was for me the next frontier. So I was probably like in my late teens and yeah, just we didn't have really, there was internet, but there was no like streaming or any videos on internet yet. So yeah, I was watching probably uh, Discovery Channel and all that jazz. So there were some good shows on Everest and mountaineering in general, and I could rewatch those over and over. So yeah, let's blame television. The next frontier from New Brunswick to Everest. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, that's very cool. And so then you got into technical rock climbing, and, and when did you get into to ice? Uh, I was climbing ice before I was climbing a rock. We, we have some like seaside cliffs on the Bay of Fundy that had ice. We don't have mountains, but we do have like decent climbing in New Brunswick. So... Um, yeah, I kind of learned on my own. I had a bike helmet for a helmet and I was, uh, I didn't know how to make an anchor. So I went to our, um, for, for Canadians out there will know this, but I went to Canadian tire and bought like six feet of chain and I would lug that big chain everywhere. And I didn't know how to lead or anything. So we were just top roping seaside ice walls and lugging that chain. That chain is probably still on a tree used as an anchor on one of the routes for sure. I don't remember, but I'll have to look it up. It has to still be somewhere. Yeah. And then discovered slings and the light gear. And maybe that's what got me into being that much of like of a gear guy. It was like starting from a, you know, probably a like freaking 15 pound chain <laughs> to like a few grams of slings now and ultralight beaners and stuff. So yeah, the evolution was kind of, the learning curve was slow, but steep. <laughs> slow and heavy. Slow and heavy. Yeah, there you go. Is there anything that can, uh, Canadian Tire doesn't have? No, it's, it's, it's God's store. <laughs> like it, you get everything at Canadian Tire. We, like, if we lose Canadian Tire, we'll lose our independence and Americans will take over the, the country for sure. Yeah, we depend on Canadian Tire. It's, it's, it's the perfect store. By the way, not affiliated with Canadian Tire in any kind of way. But we are Canadian Tire. Thank you very much for sponsoring this episode. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, okay. Well, we're going to jump jump ahead maybe a little bit. Um, do you mind just sharing a bit maybe about your background and then you know how you ended up in, in Quebec? Again, with my adventure-seeking background, I, uh, when I got a little older, um, I joined the Canadian military and... Um, did did just just uh just shy of 20 years in the military and uh that's what brought me for the first time to Quebec because I wanted to be in the French regiment uh joined in the infantry so I wanted to be with the world famous Vendus that uh, the Royal 22nd Regiment Infantries and in my quick spiel of thing through a few tours went back to New Brunswick to in a, the infantry school in a base there and then came back so I've been here for 8 years now steady 
So yeah, that's what brought me first to Quebec and got me to sample the Quebec winters and bigger mountains, I'll say in air quotes, <laughs> than New Brunswick. We're going to go into your military experience a little bit more, but I'm curious because you, you went a little bit west, but if you keep going west, you get really big mountains. So have you ever thought about going out to like Canmore or the Canadian Rockies? Oh yeah, that's been a lifelong like battle in my mind to not go there. No, I guess what attracted me to Quebec was the, I was still close to family, close enough that it's, you can get there on a day drive. Uh, I'm about seven hours from where I grew up. And yeah, I don't have the big mountains, but I do have the big climbing. Like you got to keep in mind, Quebec has some of the best ice routes in the world. Like if I'm talking Pomme d'Or, La Lutte, Le Mulot, like stuff that it's like over 300 meters high, Re real stuff that you would think should be in the Rockies, but are actually like East Coast. So we do have really good stuff. And the other cool thing is that we have very stable winters right now, except last year. We won't talk about last year. It was, it was junk. <laughs> but uh, yeah, other than that, we have like amazing, amazing ice climbing here. I feel like the reputation of Quebec, it's a little bit mixed and maybe generational. And, you know, some people really know a lot about it. Some people, it's maybe a little bit uh, less, less known or understood. So what would you say makes Quebec special? The playground. Uh, definitely the playground. Yeah, like you said, some stuff got lost. Even, even within the Quebec community, uh, Quebec was uh, leading the way in the sport in a lot of ways. Like the first M grade was given in Pont Rouge here. Uh, the first year of the World Cup, right downtown Quebec City on the Plaine d'Abraham was one of the World Cup uh, events with a big ass, like artificial structure, which a lot of ass, ass Quebec ice climbers, and they don't even know that happened. Uh, it's kind of, it's kind of one of my goals right now here in the community is trying to bring that back. What I think might've happened is that they, one of the generation didn't pass it on to the next one because yeah, there was some rad stuff going on here for a few years and then it kind of disappeared. So yeah, Quebec climbing is amazing. Like from, from easy, long ice routes all the way to like some of the scariest ice you'll ever see. Like we got stuff graded like double I six plus R, which is freaking wild for 300 meters. I mean, it's world-class. And again, I'll, I'll, I'll state this again, is that the fact that we have really stable seasons of dependable ice. Yeah. So actually, uh, Kelsey Rex, who's going to be on uh, the show as well. She is from New Hampshire, and she was saying that the future of ice climbing in New England is actually Quebec. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> because, yeah, like, I, I can compare to New Brunswick, which um, when I left eight years ago, my three or four last seasons in New Brunswick, I was hitting seasons of, like, 60 days of ice climbing. And uh, I know in the last, like, three years, I don't even know if they had 20-ish days of climbable ice so yeah, we're definitely seeing a movement there. And New England is kind of on that, except for the altitude that you get in New England, but like down low, it's kind of on that same uh, latitude and you're starting to feel that climate change a little bit more. So yeah, you can definitely see a, a change happening. Circling back to your military experience, um, you were medically released for PTSD a few years ago after two tours in the Middle East. And this is pertinent to what the episode is really focused on, which is forecast equipment. 
So can you just talk to those experiences? Sure. So my first tour was in 07 with the Canadian Battle Group in Afghanistan, in the Kandahar province. So this was a legit like inf infantry grunt kind of tour. Um, I was a young private at the time and our job there was basically if you go shake the beehive and take care of that business, if I can put it in those words. Um, so yeah, I came back from that tour in a, how can I say this? I'll, I'll compare it to like a firefighter, a firefighter that he doesn't want to go extinguish a fire, but he still wants to go kind of thing. Like you. It's your job. You don't want a fire to happen because, you know, people might get hurt or died, but there's a part of you that want to do your job still. So it's kind of the, that the infantry is kind of that kind of background where you don't really want to go fight a war, but you've been training for years to go fight a war. So it's kind of a weird kind of mix of emotion. You want to do your job at some point, but you don't want a war. So it's kind of weird. But yeah, so yeah, first tour was Afghanistan. I came out of there with PTSD. I went through therapy through the military. Uh, Canadian military has a really good, like, uh, they, they help us a lot. Like, I mean, it evolved with Afghanistan, I think, because before, before the Afghanistan days, anything mental health was like, it, it was a shame. You, you, you didn't want to go there. You didn't want to tell anyone to go there. It was like, you were weak if you went through uh, any kind of mental health. Uh, Afghanistan changed all that. All of that kind of, all of that stigma kind of disappeared because, because we're all, we're all fucked when we came back. Uh, my 07 was the first that my battalion went to Kandahar. We had just moved down there from Kabul and, uh, yeah, we saw real, what for Canada was special because we saw the first real combat since the Korean war in the fifties. So for Canada, it was big. And, uh, yeah, with combat comes all the, the, the collateral damage I'll say to the soldiers. So yeah, I came back with PTSD and like I was saying, I went through the whole, uh, medical thing and it was really, it went really well. So I, they got me rehabilitated and everything like as much as I could. But then in 2018, I think I went back, I went a totally different kind of tour. I was doing some personal security detail, dressed in civilian clothing. Uh, civilian clothing was my camouflage over there. <laughs> We're doing uh, VIP escorts and personal security in Baghdad, uh, Iraq. Uh, that was an amazing tour. Uh, it, was, it was calm. Not a lot of action happened there. It was really, really, really cool. But that was kind of like, if I can put it in climbers term, um, I got a bad frostbite in Afghanistan. And then went back in the cold and then just, just re, uh, re-inflamed it, I guess. So yeah, that was, uh, coming back from Iraq, which was an amazing tour, uh, professionally wise, because I was now in a leadership role. And, uh, at that point in, Can in our Canadian hierarchy, I was a sergeant in charge of my unit and, uh, yeah, I was taking generals and politician all over Baghdad with up-armored uh, Toyota Land Cruisers. It was freaking cool. So yeah, so long story short, when I came back, that's where like uh, I was done medically. Uh, I was, it took like to keep you in for a few years to make sure you're ready to, to be discharged. But I was medically discharged in January, uh, not last one, like so a year plus ago. If we want to link this up through, I know we're going towards the forecast equipment thing is that when I was in Baghdad, I had time. I actually brought some ice tools there uh, just for training and uh, 
I was kind of hoping to dry tool on some of those blowed up structures. That did not happen, but it was still, you see my climbing side here. Always hoping for something to climb. But that's where I started having time to think. And I was getting more into the ice tool world and the gear side of things and trying to figure out what could be better. And um, so, yeah, the timing was right when I came back from that tour where the military told me I had to take time for myself to try to heal up. So that's where I had to put my focus onto something. And uh, that's where I started tinkling about making my own tool. So this is kind of where it started. But I have to say, like, um, something I have to say here is that for me, PTSD is, is, was hard. It's, uh, it's a thing about you're always having anxiety. Uh, you're always like, the way I can describe it is when you go on those missions, you're as a human, you're normal stress, like on a timeline, you, you'll get these peaks when stuff happens in your life. Like you go into that kind of red zone and it's natural. You get that maybe twice a year when something bad happens, you lose someone or car crash or whatever the reason you get those spikes where your anxiety or your stress level goes above that red line. But when you're on those tours, you live in that red zone up there. Your, your daily day is in that red zone because your danger is always there and all. So your body get accustomed to being in that red zone and it get, you kind of get normalized in that zone, but it's not natural. So when you come back in the civilian world or in the safe world, I'll say, uh, as we're lucky to be living in a free society in a first world country, I guess, um, you're not, you're kind of, you're still adapted for those combat zone or everything. So you're kind of, Life is weird with the rest of the population. So, yeah. So for me, it was like anxiety and like having a hard time going to crowds, uh, always seeing danger where there's was none. Like I still have that habit of just looking at people's hands. You're always looking at hands. See if someone has their hands in their pocket, your, your, your eyes are attracted to that like instantly. So that, that's what it was for me, like, or it still is, uh, because I'm still working through all that stuff. But what was weird for me is that people that get PTSD will always find, naturally find, without them knowing, there'll always be a coping mechanism. Your, your brain is trying to get you out of there. So most people, it'll, the, the usual suspects are usually drugs, alcohol, sex, gambling, violence. But for me, it was actually documented. It was actually, I was diagnosed that my coping mechanism was climbing. Because the cool thing about climbing is that it actually acts like a drug. When you're, when you're actually on the wall, you're not thinking about your problem. You're thinking about that next hold or that next protection or that, that piece of gear you just fumbled down. Like your problems are there in the moment and you can forget about the rest. So uh, it's kind of cool. It's actually written in my medical docs that climbing was my coping mechanism. So yeah, that's kind of a long spiel about how my military career got climbing involved and laced into that. So if I come back to the story, this is where I got time because a really cool thing about the Canadian military is that when they're actually ready to release you medically, you get, because it's, they're the ones taking the decision to release you, uh, you get two years of salary so you can take care of yourself because they want you to focus on your problems and they want you to get better, I guess. So you still, once you release, you, you're still attached to their, their medical team that are still taking care of you, but you get two years of salary. 
So basically two years that you're not going to be working a, a normal job. So this is where forecast kind of took off. Um, this is where the idea of me designing a tool and everything was kind of coming together and the timing was kind of right. It's, it wasn't planned this way. It just kind of happened. And, uh, yeah, I could actually focus my time and mental, <laughs> mental time onto making this happen. Well, that's a great segue. So why don't you give us the spiel for what forecast equipment is and uh, your initial tool, the Nor'easter? The Nor'easter came to be because I was kind of that gear junkie that I, I always wanted the best equipment out there for what I wanted to do. Like I was always looking, I guess, for that technical edge. And um, for ice tool, I was basically... I don't know why, but I was always attracted to ice tool since the first day. There's something about ice tool. They just look freaking badass and they're beautiful pieces of equipment. So again, from New Brunswick, I would buy every tool that came on the market, tape the whole shaft up so I wouldn't scuff them and try them out. And the ones I didn't like, I would take the tape off and sell them. And the ones I'd like, I'd keep them. And I ended up like acquiring quite a big quantity of ice tools. But while doing all of that, what I didn't know was that I was learning a lot about geometry and how they work and what, what was what. And I had a pretty good, like, I guess, background in, well, ha having spent that much time on all those tools, I was starting to get like an expertise, I guess, let's call it that way, into what tool was. So I knew what they were, but I couldn't find something that I, that was perfect for me. Like I had a bunch of tools. Don't get me wrong. If I want to go dry tool, I had tools for dry tool. If I want to go ice climbing, I had tools for ice climbing. I mean, that was easy, but I still didn't have that one tool that could do everything. So this is where the story of forecast kind of launches in. Um, I wanted a tool that had everything could do everything so that that was the goal to get there was another story, but that was kind of the main focus on designing our, our nor'easter. So if I want to go, what I was looking for, I was looking for a tool that I could bring up easy snow gully, like doing like ski mountaineering all the way to like scary double I six ice to alpine mix climbing all the way to like dry tooling and even uh dry tooling on artificial structures, like world cup kind of stuff. So by doing that, I went back to the drawing board and starting to look at all the tools that I had and, okay, I want this feature from this guy, this feature from that guy, this, and then I started looking into geometry, what could be better. So yeah, I kind of started doing that big, like brainstorm kind of thing of what could I, what could all be jammed up together to create that one tool. And the other aspect was that I had been in bed with Krukenogi for over, well, I still am. Andre's been a, such a great help with me. So I've been in bed with him for a while trying to figure out, like he was sending me like prototype blades and prototype tools and all that kind of stuff. And I started discovering that the cop world had a lot of stuff they could bring to the normal ice climbing world. And I found that it was interesting, but no one was doing that kind of thing. So I, like I had some, some of those Krukenogi Ankar tools and I was looking at them like this could climb ice. But these were the tool winning World Cups on artificial structures. But a lot of stuff was right. So I started chopping petzl blades that fit on Krukenogi Ankars and adapting stuff. So this is where I kind of started chopping stuff. <laughs> this is where um, the, buff, the angle grinder came out a lot. And 
drills and all that kind of jazz. And I, I mean, like I was mentioning, I'm an infantry grunt. I, I have no engineering background and no uh, machinist background or anything. So I just started doing that stuff. And some of the stuff was working. So yeah, so I found some local kids here that had um, they had a CNC machine and they had a basic background in uh, industrial drawing. And they said, yeah, we'll help. So we started drawing stuff. And the first kind of prototype of Nor'easter drawing got done. And I was really excited. But those kids did something they weren't supposed to. And then the law got involved. And then, yeah, they, let's say they kind of disappeared. So then I was stuck with just a drawing. It was kind of, that was the first hit through this project. And then started going around and machining shopped around and, just just a kid with drawing and yeah they they were asking me like uh some places was like four grand for making a tool so i was like that's not gonna happen so kind of put the project on ice for a while and then i think a year went by ish or maybe six months and uh climber from montreal came into the quebec city area and i knew him a bit so we went out climbing and he started he showed me on his phone that he had made some wind tools so shout out to Timothée. Uh, he had made some wooden tools and they're freaking cool. And then I showed him on my phone the drawing I had of my tool. And then he's like, oh, that's cool. He's like, he asked me, why don't you do it? And then I told him machinists were too expensive and I just couldn't afford making a prototype. So he said, hey, one of my uncle is a machinist. I'll, I'll run this through him. So I'm like, yeah, sure. Didn't expect anything of it. But yeah, and he did. And he talked to his uncle and his uncle contacted me and it made me an offer, which was, I'll make you 10 pairs of tools. We make one pair, and then you're allowed to make one set of changes on this, and then we produce the nine other pairs, and they're all going to be at the same price. And it was great. It was a wicked offer, but I still had to buy 10 pairs of tools, which was still flipping expensive. So I had hopes for a while, and then it kind of crashed down because I couldn't come forward 10 pairs of tools. This led me to one evening where we had this uh, Facebook Messenger chat open, a bunch of us like geeking out on gear all the time. And in that group, there was uh, Zach St. Jules, Brian O'Leary, there was uh, Tyler Kempney, and Michaela was in there, uh, Olivier was in there. I know a bunch of us anyway. So at some point, I remember Tyler was, was saying that there was not enough camp ice tools on the podium at the World Cup since he was... He was sponsored by camp at the time. And uh, for a joke, I just dropped in my drawing in there and I said, this is what should be on the podiums. And, you know, just just shooting the shit with the guys. And uh, then they're all like, Marty, what's what's that? I'm like, well, it's a draw. I've been working on this. And it's, you know, it's nothing really. And then they're like, they started actually asking me a real question. Like, you know, what? No, no, like, tell us about it. And so I told them about it. And then I told them the story about the 10 pairs of tools. And then I remember Zach asking, he's like, how, how much would it be for a pair? And I told him the price, like this was obviously cost price. I mean, we just wanted to make these. And then Zach said, and is that in Canadian currency? And I was like, yeah. He's like, that's, that's cheap. That's cheap American money. So right away, Zach was like, I'll take a pair. And then all of them, all of them, Shouted in, they all gave me money, and then we were able to create the first prototype. Like I said, I made a few changes, and then we created the first nine pairs of uh, the ancestor of the nor'easter, let's call it. 
And then that was actually the start of it. So it went forward and having the tools in the hand of all these people that were all like, you know, really, really good, knowledgeable climbers actually made me accelerate the process really quickly. So from their feedback, I was able to create the first commercial version of the Nor'easter. So at that point, when everything was kind of starting, I, I needed help. I couldn't do this on my own. So uh, my first natural choice was Zach. Zach had been a good friend of mine for a while. We've always, well, we, we met geeking out on tools on Mountain Project uh, about 10, 12 years ago. And uh, Zach had always that same kind of motivation as me. And so, yeah, it was the natural fit to bring Zach in to help me out because I couldn't do this on my own. So I brought Zach in and we, we got the first batch of Nor'easters going and we kind of, at that point, we only had a name for the tool, which was a Nor'easter. We had to find a name for the company that is actually harder than you think. Something important for me. And it had to be something that was related to the East Coast. Uh, we all know what Nor'easters are. It's, the, it's that weather. If, well, for the people that are not from the Nor'east, uh, Nor'easters are the first big weather events that bring us our first big snowstorms of the year. Like uh, it usually happens this time of the year. Like the first sense of coming. Uh, and uh, so, yeah. And then we named the company and we went out from there. Uh, then COVID hit. That was kind of hard. And I managed to uh, get myself through the border to get to the Mount Washington Valley Ice Festival. And uh, this is where the third part of forecast kind of came into play here. It was Brian. Because I was going there, Zach was going to be guiding to help us, you know, pay for our table at the festival. And then I was going to do this on my own for the first time, being a vendor kind of thing. And then Brian, that was always close to the to me and Zach, was like, oh, I'll come down and help you. So Brian came down and I couldn't have done it without him. He was there with me. We were, we were managing table, learning, learning the ropes of being at a festival and being a vendor. This, <laughs> this was, this was funny. And, um, at the end of the festival, Zach and I were like, okay, Brian is, Brian is part of this now. So Brian came in, Brian has brought it like an engineer background to the company and a lot of energy. And so, yeah, since then it's been the three of us. And the cool thing about our, about our trio, I guess, is that we're so different from each other and we, we basically complete each other kind of thing. I know I'm going on a romantic rant here, but, uh, yeah, I like I started this thing, but it's, it's the three of us now. It's, uh, yeah, it's a cool, it's a cool thing where I don't know where we're going to take this, but we're having fun while we're doing and doing it. And yeah, I think that's the important part. What were you looking for though, in the initial design? And then I'm curious because you had all these really, uh, like world-class level climbers using the initial prototype, what was the feedback that they gave you that ultimately led to the, the first commercial iteration? A lot of like ergonomic things, like the natural, dis the natural geometry didn't change. That was good. It was more of like the comfort. Oh, make that angle a little bit more rounder, make, uh, the pummels, how they were, uh, the relationship with the pummels to the tip of the ice blade where we could cut weight. And, um, oh, thickness was a big one. Like, uh, basically at that point, my goal was to make. You under, everyone, I think everyone on this podcast will understand what position one and position two are on an ice tool, like the lower handle and the top handle. I wanted position one and position two to feel exactly the same. Basically, if you close your eyes and I put a nor'easter in your hand, you won't know if I gave you first or second position. So 
I really wanted that feeling and it, it helps with pick shift. It helps with a lot of things. So yeah. So a lot of those little technical aspect came into that, but we're always evolving. Like this is the cool part of having like a small, small company, I guess, is that like from first batch of Nor'easter, I think we're at their fourth or fifth right now. I think every little one, something has evolved on them. Whether it is like we used to thread our bolts right through the aluminum. We had like threaded aluminum and now we all change that to having them uh, use a nut so you don't strip aluminum. So basically stainless steel bolt and uh, aluminum threads. It's pretty obvious that it's easy to strip kind of thing. So it's just little things like that that always evolve. Uh, we're always trying to make it better. Since you're talking about nuts and bolts, can we go into the nuts and bolts of uh, of the design and the ergonomics and the the angles? Because I know that one of the initial inspirations you were you were particularly excited about the the Petzl Ergo. I think you liked the, that it was very curved and overhanging uh, or conducive to overhanging climbing. And so I guess like how does the tool compare to that? And like, can you talk about maybe like the pick angle itself and positioning and things like that? Yeah, that was a big aspect of this. This is something that um, I'll give the credits to Kukunogi for this is that for a long time, every time you saw like the top end dry tooling tools from all the big brands, they, they almost looked like bananas. Like the tools were so aggressive. Like the shaft was almost like a half circle and the blades were pointing literally downwards. And it had been like that for, for a while in the, in the dry tooling world or the mixed world. And then Krug came out with this new geometry that when I looked at an Ankar for the first time, I could see that the, the pick angle was like less than a Petzlnomic. So, so in my mind, it's like you have something that's winning World Cups and dry tooling, and it's less aggressive than a Petzlnomic that's like the dream ice climbing machine. Like, so what they figured out is that you could put all that aggressiveness to be able to hook a little hold into just that first tooth of your blade. So basically creating like what we call kind of a beak. It looks like a bird beak. So all that aggressiveness can be put into like a few millimeters, the tip of your, of your blade, I guess. So in my mind, that changed everything. So that meant that you could slap on a ice blade to one of those dry tooling tools and climb ice like amazingly. What I like to say is like, if you take like Formula One car racing, the technology that's in one of those cars 10 years later is in a Toyota Corolla. So it, it's the testing ground. So I kind of saw competition ice climb or dry tooling to be that kind of cutting edge. So stuff that they were starting to do up there, why not kind of bring this back to just normal everyday ice climbing for, you know, 90% of the population. So a lot of things got adapted on Nor'easter. Like we have longer handles, competition inspired longer handles. So you do, you can do a triple hand match. A lot of people say, oh, you don't really need that for ice climbing. But once you start using it, it's another tool in your box. Yeah. You totally use that while ice climbing. And I've, I've heard from people that have uh, like a negative ape index or maybe a little bit shorter that they actually particularly like that extra reach for ice too. Ice climbing is very simple. It's how much, how much gas you have in your tank and how much height you need to climb. So if you have a longer first position, meaning your second position is a lot higher, every time you swing and stick your ice tool and you bump to that second position, if, if that second position is almost an inch longer, you're gaining that extra inch every move. So that 
that could be a whole a whole move by the end of that pitch. So a whole move is a lot of energy. So yeah, longer tool, longer handles, I mean, will do that. But also the Nor'easter is also a little bit longer than the your average uh, Nomic, Extreme, and all those, you know, the classic big brand tools. And that helps a lot for reach, obviously. But it also, and here I'm not an engineer, so I'll try to explain this the best as I can explain it. Uh, you also get a lot more acceleration at the head of the tool for the same amount of energy you're putting into your wrist, that wrist flick. So a lot of people that don't have that upper body strength will find that a nor'easter will swing a lot better because you can you can have all that energy put into. This is hard to explain. I'm trying to translate from French here. So yeah, it's it's getting that same energy from your wrist, I guess, or your arm to the tip of your blade. So yeah, basically less energy to get the same amount of impact, I guess, as someone stronger, I guess. But yeah, so the longer tool was also something that we brought into the the nor'easter. Another thing was that the fact that a nor'easter is a one-piece machined aluminum tool, so basically you don't have like a riveted head and riveted handles like a lot of the other tools on the market. So that makes that the tool is, well, first, less prone to breaking. And also that it's a lot stiffer. And people see stiffness in an ice tool, they'll, in their mind, a lot of people will see it as like a tool flexing in a stein pole or in a torque or something. But what people don't realize when you're ice climbing, when you're actually swinging your tool, that flex is there when you're impacting with ice. That flex happens. You don't see it, but it does happen. And what is flex in like mechanical terms is a loss of energy. So having a really stiff tool means that every time you're swinging your ice and that blade impacts with the ice, you're not losing any of that energy. That energy is is going straight to the tip of your pick. So yeah, the nor'easter is really, really rigid. I don't like quoting the, the competition, but I can flex an extreme in a in a stein for about two inches, and I can flex a gnomic about one inch. It's pretty crazy to to watch. I mean, it doesn't mean it's going to break. It's just that it's flexing. Uh, because they're tubular construction, but, uh, yeah. So that was one of the other big aspect of the Nor'easter. And if we want to get into the nuts and bolts, something that was really important for me personally, when I get into the harder climbing, kind of at my limit, I've kind of created that concept for myself, that strategy, I guess, that if I'm really pushing myself and, uh, some, like, let's say I'm starting to be pumped. I'm on a double I six, something ice. I'm starting to pump out. And uh, I have this tether that's attached to my the belay loop of my harness, and it's there's a beaner at the end, and it's exactly the length of just below my wrist. So basically, where the tool kind of ends. So if something is happening, and I'm starting to feel that I'm I'm a little bit too pumped for my liking, I'll just deploy that and clip it to the bottom spike of my tool. So at that point, I'm still sending. This thing is not like it's just still loose. But if something does happen, I just need to sit and I'm sitting in that tool. It's kind of my strategy personally for climbing harder ice. And because a lot of climbing is between your ears. It's, it's a mental thing. Uh, a lot of time when you think you're done, you still have a lot of energy in your tank, more than you think. So basically what, what this tether is doing for me, it's helping me relax. So then I can fire in a screw, put a draw, clip my ropes. And then uh, out of the blue, I'm breathing again, getting away from that uh, tunnel vision. And then you look down and you see that foot you miss. So you, you get in a good stance and you start relaxing again. But like I said, if something goes wrong, I can just sit and 
sit in my harness in my tool. So long story short to say that I really, really wanted a, like a clippable bottom spike that I could actually sit in. And, uh, when, when Petzl brought in their last, I'm backtracking here, but when Petzl brought in their last lineup of tools, I was so excited because they finally had a clippable bottom spike. But when the tools came out, we later found that those would just rip. And I was, I was so sad. I was like, this is, this is what we'll be climbing with for the next eight years. This was kind of the start of forecast equipment. That was in that time frame. So I was like, shit, like, we, okay, we're back to square one, I guess. And it'll be eight years before one of the big brands changes their tools. So, so yeah, to get back to that, that's one of the features I really wanted. I didn't want, and I didn't want to hear anything about those little cordlet shredded into the handles. I personally hate that. It's always in your hand. It's always flipping around. So with, uh, with the Nor'easter, you can clip it and you can still use that tool a hundred percent. So yeah, if I'm going bottom to top Nor'easter, that was one of the big features I really wanted. Uh, we've already talked about the handle. If we go to the head, we've used the same bolt pattern as the Petzl because there's a lot of Petzl products out there and a lot of aftermarket blades that are made for that bolt pattern. So we use that bolt pattern. It was just natural. So people can customize their tools. Uh, we sell our tool with a hammer. We sell our tools with cheeks. There's bolts on the head. There's a holes, treaded holes on the head to place cheeks on it. So this is all about being modular. And uh, again, with my philosophy of trying to create a tool that can do it all. So you can dress it up for what you want to do that day from bottom spike to cheeks, to hammers, to anything you basically want. So this is, this was the vision that created the, the Nor'easter. I do want to play devil's advocate slightly, because if you're making an all around tool, there must be some a limitation in some sort of top end performance. Have you gotten any feedback about where maybe it's not optimized for X, Y, or Z? Because if you're climbing, you know, really steep competition dry tooling, it's quite a bit different than low angle WI3. Where, where we're kind of, I don't want to say lacking, but our kind of downfall is that we're using aluminum uh, for now. Aluminum has its downfall since it's, uh, it's a little heavier than, let's say, the carbon tools out there right now. But every downfall has a, I see it as a balancing act. Like, uh, yes, they're heavier if you're dry tooling a little bit, but I mean, by heavier, I mean, I think they're, don't quote me exactly on this, but I think they're a little heavier than a Petzlnomic, but a little lighter than an Xtreme. So just to put the ballpark so that listeners can understand where we're kind of situated with this tool. I mean, it's, it's no way a heavy tool, but I mean, it's heavier than, like you said, like the top end, like very niched, uh, dry tooling machines, but yeah, it has that, but I mean, people get afraid then to drop those tools. I've heard that a lot. Like, yeah, we have these super sexy carbon tools, but we're afraid to drop them. Nor'easters, chuck them off the top of the first pitch and they should, they'll be fine. I mean, don't do, don't do that. But you, I mean. <laughs> do you have a lifetime uh, guarantee? <laughs> uh, not really, but I know uh, Zach started this uh, every time for the first season, every time he'd top out a, a pitch, you just throw his Nor'easters from the top. <laughs> So yeah, the, the material is definitely something that's holding us back, but we're, we're, we're still growing. We're looking at alternative, uh, we've made prototypes and other types of materials. And other than that, yeah, again, with the material, aluminum is a cold conducive, uh, material also, which carbon isn't, I mean, uh, 
I guess we could have that carbon aluminum debate for a long time. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, technology is going forward right now. There's some really, really cool things happening in materials, what they can blend together. And I'm, I'm, I'm discovering as I'm going about all of this, like uh, it's a wild world. Metals and been looking into blades right recently and trying to figure out what they're made of and what how how to make blades and stuff and it's it's just wild and one little thing i'll, I'll tell to the audience is because I, I find this so funny but i understand it ask any blade makers uh, out there what metal they're using they'll basically tell you to flip off it's like the mcdonald's secret sauce like everyone has their secret recipe because yeah, the metal world is that wild. There's so many blends of everything out there and it's uh it's really interesting. Like I said, we're learning all this stuff as we're going forward. And by learning, I mean we're learning, we're using <laughs> we're using uh experienced met metallurgists and people like that to do it. I mean, we're not just blending metal on ourselves. I don't have a foundry here. But yeah, it's very interesting in a wild world. So it sounds like you have a lot of ideas for the future of this business. It's it's much more than the nor'easter yeah we're just kind of going with it right now we're trying to find like places where there's there's like holes in the industry i guess stuff that can be better uh, like i've mentioned before we have the option of moving quicker than the big brands because we're small basically two things um we're looking into blades where it's gonna be a while I, this is uh like we we have a few prototypes and stuff like that. Like, I mean, we're off the drawing board and we're into prototyping, but it's, uh, we want to make sure we get it good. So definitely blades. And also this is my dream, uh, that the carbon world we've, we've touched into the carbon world, see where we can take this. And I say carbon, but there's different blends out there. I, I really want to understand what's possible. What's being able to be blended together. Like, a, like I was saying a little earlier, like I think the materials are interesting. We also, this is not a secret anymore, but we also have a Alpine Nor'easter that we've created. Definitely in the New England area, there'll be some out there for people to try and uh, probably before Christmas, hopefully, uh, that people can go at Savage Mountain Gear and grab a pair for a weekend. They'll be there. They're basically a straight shaft Nor'easter, a little shorter for those people that are more doing like uh, part of the mountaineering side of things or less technical ice. We're also looking into the comp world to make maybe a comp tool. So yeah, we'll always have like the nor'easter that is our kind of do it all kind of tool, but we're, we'll be looking to the more of the niche side of things. And, uh, yeah, I think that's what I'm allowed to say right now, <laughs> but yeah, we're always, our ears are always open. We love to have these chats with anyone that has ideas come to us. Like, I mean, it's, that's the fun part of doing it. Like, this is what we do after climbing with, and I do this, not just with Zach and Brian. I mean, I do this with all my friends and everyone that wants to talk to me about this kind of stuff. We just, after climbing, drink a few beers and just shoot the shit about what, what could be done. And this is what I've learned personally, because coming, like we've talked about coming from a military background with no engineering or machinist background, I, I never thought I would be able to make gear. And, uh, I think you just have to believe it's, it's, um, I don't want to say that anyone can do it, but yeah, anyone can do it. If you're passionate enough about something and you have to drive to make it happen, I was lucky to have the time also to make it happen. But I mean, yeah, Marty from today was talking to Marty from just five years ago. Uh, no way, no way, no way. I was making commercial ice tools and being able to do that with two of my best friends, Zach and Brian is just, 
is just making it that much more fun. It seems like the reception's been quite strong to, to the point where someone actually got a tattoo uh, of your tool before you did. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's a pretty funny story. Uh, I have no tattoos. I'm still a tattoo virgin. And uh, I thought this could have been the moment for me to get on that train. And I uh, had been thinking a lot about it for a while to the point where my last birthday, last September on the 29th, um, my girlfriend gave to me a voucher for a tattoo of a nor'easter, which had I'd been talking about it for over a year. But the evening before, so on the 28th, one of our friend Jenny, shout out to Jenny, came out with a picture of a nor'easter tattooed on her forearm. It, it, it threw my girlfriend to the floor. I didn't know she was going to offer me that, but that was just, it's just funny. But yeah, it's, it's a weird mental trip to go through that. It's, uh, it's freaking cool. <laughs> We've kind of created forecasts in my, in my mind, I'm seeing it now more than just a, a brand that makes tool or we kind of have a little following going on, the kind of forecast family, let's say. And it's been really cool. And yeah, some of the customers become some of my great friends now. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's still new to me. It's still, there's a weird aspect of it, a good weird aspect, but the first thing, it, it's fun. The ice climbing community is so small, but so like friendly, I guess. And forecast is just helping me meet new people and see that world from a different angle, I guess. Well, more than just the tattoo. I mean, people are using your tool, uh, out in mountains, at, in competition on the World Cup stage. I mean, it's pretty wild that two years ago it was just a concept and now it's now it's live and in action in your, your fifth iteration. So what is that like for you just to see it out? You know, it's real. Yeah, all right, that, that was a wild part and it still is. Every time I see like a picture of someone doing a first ascent somewhere or climbing something really hard or not hard at all, it's I still get that little... Um, that little shiver or that little, those little goosebumps that are, they're my tools. Like a, a cool little story was when um, right away we took, I took in a sponsored athlete right away, a kid from, well, it's not a kid anymore, but kid from Quebec called David Bouffard. Shout out to David. Uh, he's been doing the World Cup for a while. Uh, he's doing really good. And right away I, I offered David tools and he's been on board since. But I remember that first comp, it was live on YouTube. It was, I don't remember which one it was, but it was a European cup. I wanted to watch it live, obviously. And it ended up being like at 2 or 3 a.m. local time here. And I stayed up and I remember I was, I was a stress ball. I couldn't sit down. I was, I was pacing in the house. I just, in my mind, like there's going to be a close up of the tool while David was going to be in a stein. The tool was going to snap in half. So no, it tool didn't stop. Everything went well. And, uh, yeah, so we have David's pair on the world cup. Always cool to see, uh, my tools in the world cup. Uh, Tyler Howe got us on the second step of the podium at URA last year. It was pretty cool. I mean, I'll, I'll never, ever, ever take credit from the climbers. They're the one doing it, but there's a little part of me that's like, oh, I podium at URA last year. I got a second place at URA. Uh, There'll always be that little part of it, like, uh, that I'll keep to myself. That'll be kind of mine, but I mean, it's the athletes doing the work. I mean, it's not the tool, obviously. 
and seeing them in the wild for the first time, like seeing a customer that I had never met and seeing him on a trail on an approach trail somewhere with Nor'easter is still, still a weird feeling. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 like I said, it's a weird mental trip, a good one, but a weird one. <laughs> well, they definitely stand out from the, the visual aesthetics of it to, uh, the color scheme they use. They're, they're quite pretty. Yeah. That's, that's a cool thing. I mean, like, I remember when everyone was, especially like on the world cup scene and stuff, people are taping their tools, all sorts of color and finding that cool. I mean, yeah, it is cool, but we can offer you different colors of tool. Like I personally use like my, my ice setup is a blue nor'easter and a purple nor'easter. Um, we've sold a lot of weird mismatch pairs of, uh, of tools. It's so cool. And one other thing on that, uh, I do a little bit of coaching and like intro to ice or mix or dry tooling and stuff like that. And when you're teaching someone to ice climb and they have two different colors of tools, it's actually easier when you can say, oh, take your blue tool and go to that big hold or take your red tool or purple tool or gold tool. I know it's simple. You could tape your tools and do the exact same effect, but yeah, it, it worked. It was funny. If people want to be able to try the tools before buying, is there a way to do that outside of like the Northeast or Quebec? So yeah, on the East Coast, it's pretty easy. Uh, we will be at all the main festivals. Uh, we also have at uh, Savage Mountain Gear in North Conway, we have uh, some demo tools there. Uh, the three boys, me, Zach, and Brian, always have some demo tools with us. I mean, I'm I'm just a, just out of Quebec City. I'm always here with some tools if anyone want to reach out and come and try them. Uh, if you're on an ice trip to Quebec, uh, I'll lend you some tools for a few days. Uh, come on up. We have ice, like we mentioned earlier. <laughs> but I mean, uh, yeah, there's ways. Contact us. We're small. Like I said, we're small. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do our best to get you some tools to try them out. Uh, I think we might have a pair of demo tools to URA this year. We won't be there, but we're trying to get a, some tools there. Furnace Industry has been really cool with us to hopefully we'll be able to send him off with some of our tools. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're trying, we're, we'd love to be able to do something, but, uh, there's only three of us and, uh, we're doing our best, to try to be everywhere. <laughs> Climbing and, and then this company has definitely been a, a therapy for you as, as you've, you've talked about. Do you have any, any message for other people that are, you know, working with and working through PTSD? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, for, for all my fellow uh, veterans and active military guys out there that are dealing with PTSD, guys, you're not alone. And if, if there's anything, you can re reach out to a friend. If even worst case, contact me directly on Facebook. I'm easy to find. We'll have, we'll, we'll chat about gear. It's sometimes just taking your mind off of the, of that dark spell, I guess. Um, yeah, this there's ways out of it. I know in Canada, I can't speak for like the U.S. and the rest of the world, but I know in Canada, our military take great care of us once we're out. But um, if it's not the case in your country, guys, uh, let's have a chat. Let's just let's just talk. If you're a climber, we'll geek out on gear for a while. Uh, the idea is just to get your mind off of that for a while. Even if it's just for a few minutes, I know it helps. Uh, but if you need help, go go seek it. Mental health is not what it used to be. It's not, I know that, that bad, that bad connotation that was in the, especially in the military environment that you're weak if you go to mental health, it's, that's, that, that doesn't exist anymore. 
and I'm saying that as a guy that's been to combat and everything, like I consider myself a real, you know, combat veteran. I don't feel weak because I went to, and I'm still going through mental health therapy and all that jazz. If, if you don't, you're not feeling well, seek out help guys. It's, it's not worth living with it alone. And, uh, yeah, climbing can be that, let's call it that drug that helps you out. And uh, I'll say it again. If you just, if you need to talk to someone, you can reach out to me, uh, uh, we'll have a chat and sometimes that's all it takes. And if you're local here, we'll go climbing. So yeah, don't just don't stay in that dark spell alone. And you, you sort of touched upon this a little bit earlier, but we always end with this question. If you were to give your younger self one piece of beta, what would that be? Start this earlier, like believing in yourself. If you have ideas, I mean, it's 2023 now, almost 2024. We have so many resources to make stuff happen. Like here, I'm just talking about gear and stuff, but I mean, for anything, um, with all the communications out there, with all everything that we have access to today, it's easier to make things happen than it was uh, just 10 years ago. Uh, if you have ideas, like I'm making tools, you're making personally a podcast. Like, I mean, dude, we can, we can make stuff happen and, and. Find the right people to help you. Again, shout out to Zach and Brian. Like sometimes it's, it seems hard by yourself. Just get, get the right people around you and, uh, yeah, just go for it. I'm stoked for you guys. It's really cool to see a new, uh, a new tool, a new piece of technology to come out in the climbing space. Cause it, it does seem relatively rare, especially from the larger brands. So kudos to all you. Marty and the Forecast team are offering veterans and active duty military a 10% discount through January. To get the code, contact the company at sales at forecastequipment.com. That is forecast, F-O-R-E-C-A-S-T, equipment, all one word, dot com.